Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to episode four of Sports Medicine on Tap. I'm Jason Kopeck here with Dr. Frey from hey. Neck of the Woods every week. How you doing? Doing good, Doc. Uh, so we sat through a lot of meetings. Uh, did you think this early on, episode four, we would be doing a two-part series this early? I did not. Pretty psyched that we made it to episode four. It's <laughs> a good point, but we're back to talk a little bit more about the Fernando Tatis injury. Uh, I felt like we left off with Dr. Mary, where we talked a lot about the pathoanatomy side of the injury. And then as the conversation went on, we really delved into the, the rehab standpoint, being that we knew it was going to be a non-operative approach to it. And I thought no better to bring in my, my, my colleague, my good friend, Jess Harrison from Recon Sports and the Energy Lab. Jess Harrison is a physical therapist with us. Jess, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Jess, tell us a little bit about your background, and there's obviously a very specific reason why I brought you in here tonight, but tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I guess I'll start more from the beginning. So I'm originally from West Virginia, which I think is the the initial thing that always throws someone off because now I'm in New Jersey. So I grew up in West Virginia. I went to undergrad West Virginia Wesleyan where I studied athletic training Dual as threat. my major. Dual threat. Got to bring them both. I love those athletic trainers. And when I was in athletic training, I definitely fell in love with that sports rehab component where you're trying to rehab someone while they're also concurrently trying to be on the field. So it, it adds an extra little little intensity to your, to your rehab. So from undergrad, I went to California, big switch uh, to University of Southern California. I would assume <laughs> that West Virginia is much different than Southern California. Yes. Yeah. I yeah. really miss West Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, uh, I don't consider myself to be a sheltered person, but it was definitely a culture shock when I went to California. Sure. And believe it or not, some of them did ask me if West Virginia was a state and also was Serious asked. Problem if my teeth were real more than once. It still happens. From California, I went to Chicago where I did my orthopedic residency at Northwestern. I did that there for about a year and that was in partnership with a neurologic hospital. So I was able to bring in neuro as well as ortho and I feel like that really enhances my sports rehab now. And I've been at Recon Sports for about a year and a half now and it really is kind of the perfect location for what I've been trying to do with all those components under one roof, just kind of this little sports mecca full continuum of care. Dr. Frey, why don't you, uh, I, I guess in some way, give us a brief recap of episode three, right? Which yep. I think will be a perfect tie-in to Jess's involvement on the therapy side from the energy lab standpoint. But what is it that we know about Fernando's injury? Right. So, so Fernando Tatis takes this violent swing, misses the ball, and grabs his shoulder and crumbles to the ground. And at first, no one's really sure what the heck is going on. And it comes out that he has a posterior labral tear. It's, it's, it's described as a small, a very mild posterior labral tear. A little other information comes out. There may have been some other subluxation and stability events leading up to it, you know, blah, blah, blah. Really, really kind of a big deal, but, but they're going to go with this one, try to treat him non-operatively. So they treat him non-operatively. Um, they're going to go physical therapy route. There are really two directions you can go in with this particular injury. You can go a attempt non-operative treatment, and if it tends to be one of a, a little bit more of a mild-type injury, uh, there's a reasonable chance of success with that, which is why Jess is here to really shed some light on that particular issue versus going in the other direction, which would be a surgical intervention, which is why I'm here. 
You know, real quick, a little bit of background or a little bit of the uh, background anatomy, which helps make sense of all of this a little bit more. Your shoulder is a little bit of a ball. It's a ball and socket joint, but it's a very shallow ball and socket joint, typically described as a golf ball sitting on a golf tee, sort of sitting on its side. And it's, it's tricky. It's hard to keep the golf ball on the golf tee. It's not a very deep joint as opposed to your hip, right? It's this very deep conformed ball and socket joint, and it needs to be because you're bearing a lot of weight through the hip and it remains stable. So for your shoulder, what you're giving up is some of that stability in exchange for your ability, great motion, to be able to put your hand where it needs to be in space. Unfortunately, the downside of that is it's much more susceptible to injury. It's much, it's much more reliant on soft tissues that are surrounding the shoulder. So one, the, um, you have a rubber gasket that surrounds the, the, the golf tee, that surrounds the socket, which serves two functions. One is to serve a little bit as a bumper to block the ball from rolling off the socket. And two, there's likely a suction cup effect where, where it, the gasket kind of suctions onto the ball and helps that negative pressure, helps hold it in place. And if you have an, a tear or a small injury to that, you lose some of that suction cup effect and you lose some of that bumper. In this particular issue, this is a posterior or a back of the shoulder injury, a, a what we call a batter's shoulder. Very different than the vast majority of these types of injuries. Usually the instability is in the front of the shoulder. If there's a dislocation, usually the ball rolls off the front of the socket. In this particular situation, it was a posterior shoulder subluxation didn't dislocate entirely but it, it kind of glided to the back and caused an injury to the back of the labrum and i think that would pretty much sum up part one of this two-part episode and that's exactly why we brought jess in uh we we felt like at the last episode this was really turning over to a, a purely rehab standpoint when it comes to the energy lab you know you know what we did in collaboration with reconstructive orthopedics or recon sports uh, was we, we created this, you know, all under one roof, comprehensive sports performance and rehabilitation center where we bring in, you know, all aspects of sports medicine, right, Jess? So we have the orthopedic physicians, we have people like you, physical therapists slash ATCs, people like me, ATCs, and then our strength and conditioning coaches. You know, can, can you give me a little bit more background on, you know, what we're, we're going for there? Yeah, absolutely. I was pulled to dislocation from a previous job in Philadelphia, and I I had to come here for what we're trying to do. So we're trying to give you this sort of injury back to field, so this continued continuous loop of care to make sure that you get every best option along the way. So here we have the physicians on one side uh, with rehab and then the energy lab all on one side. So our energy lab actually houses the bridge program, which is our in-between between rehab and strength and conditioning, which I can explain a little bit more. And then we have strength and conditioning. So all of that's on one side. So we kind of call it our little sports right. mecca. Right. So you can see the physician on the physician side, then come and see me, have an appointment we go through your rehab program and based off of where you fall on that, mm -hmm. it determines how quickly we transition you into the bridge or strength and conditioning so that we can really push your sports performance. And, and the bridge would be, you know, so based off your previous experience, um, when you discharge the patient, you just crossed your fingers and hoped for the best, right? I mean, there, there wasn't a lot of communication there, right? Like you just, you hope that you got them to a point where they were 
you can go off, do, do your own thing. Yeah. And, and that's where the bridge comes in. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I like to think that before this type of setting was available to me, I went above and beyond to do that. But right. you just don't know right. when someone leaves. And yeah. also you have the instance where sometimes insurance cuts you off. Sure. So for our bridge program, it allows us to let that individual do more of what they're trying to get back to with less of that rehab overreach, I guess, so to speak. Um, So it's a really good way to see that full transition so that when you leave, we know that you're 100% back to where you need to be to not have to come back to rehab again. So, and I feel like the conversation about Fernando Tunis is a a prime example of why the Energy Lab was created, right? Let's say you weren't sitting here listening to the recap of episode three mm-hmm. for where, an hour. Yeah, where <laughs> where Doctor Frey, you know, gave you the insight of what's going on. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I've never been in that setting, but in in other situations, you would just get a referral that said X, Y, and Z, and you as the PT would just have at it. Yeah, so especially if we're talking about someone that maybe is not as well-known as sure. Fernando yep. Yeah, you your patient walks in with a referral. You might not even hear from the physician right. before you evaluate them. And you're lucky to sometimes get them on the phone after right. you evaluate them. So right. there's already a huge yeah. miscommunication before that patient even walks through the door. Which is exactly why I brought this up. So now let's take it from here, Dr. Frey. Yeah. You have a patient that... We've been through this. This is now episode four. Fernando Tatis is in no way our patient. Right. You walk over just right across the hall from, and you go to Jess at over at, you know, the PT side. For the guy who has a similar injury. Yeah. For, for the general population, right? All, you know, and we, we did discuss in the last episode that it's not the most common, right? Nope. Most tier subluxation is not common. For sure. Walk me through your prep for Jess of what you just saw in the exam room and why you referred them over to physical therapy. Right. So so let's say a guy walks into the office, got, has this injury, tells me the story of what happened. Go through the exam. There's a little bit of instability when I push on his shoulder that it's, it glides backwards or glides posteriorly a little bit. And we, we, we grade it, grade, grade one, two or zero, one, two, or three, and let's say it's grade one. It, come, it glides to the edge, but it doesn't go over the edge. It doesn't actually dislocate. It just sort of subluxes right to the edge. And, um, you know, it causes some discomfort, but he's still generally doing okay, and I send him to get some higher-level imaging. I send him to get an MRI of his shoulder. Particularly, if I'm concerned about his labor, I'm probably going to do an MRI arthrogram where we, we inject a little bit of dye into the shoulder, and it just makes it a tiny bit more sensitive, about 15% more sensitive at picking up a labral tear. So he has the MRI arthrogram, he has some mild instability, he's had this injury, he may have had some previous episodes, it's a little bit, little bit unclear at this point, and uh, on the MRI we see some mild tearing of the, the, of the posterior labrum. So you know we can go in two different directions here. One would be to go down a surgical pathway, just go ahead and fix this, but another would be to try to treat this non-operatively. And you know we're generally taught as, taught as orthopedic surgeons Anytime you can help someone without surgery, you should. That's the best way to get somebody better. If you can do it, that's what you do. It doesn't always work. It's not always an option. But, but if it is an option, it's, 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 it's worth trying. I would be able to walk over and speak to Jess, kind of tell her what's going on, explain all of that to her and say, hey, listen, I think this guy has a shot at getting better with just physical therapy alone. And, 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 and then Jess would take it from there. Out of 100 referrals that come your way, Jess, 
uh, as a PT. How often do you get that kind of prep work uh, if it's not coming from a, a recon sports doctor? Like, how often are you that prepared with that kind of background on the on the injury? Uh, when it's not in house, not not even close. Right. I think sometimes I get a script sent over, yeah. and hopefully it's legible. A lot of times it's not. <laughs> so usually I have to go off of what the patient tells me. I don't get that interaction from the physician. So in this imaginary scenario that we just made up, where you know Doctor Frey just came over, said I'm going to be sending a referral. Jess, I've worked with you about now two years. I know that you don't have a lot of downtime through the day, but let's just say he caught you at a time where you have an hour to think this over before he or she comes in. What are your initial thoughts? What are you prepping for going into your initial eval? What do you expect to come in? Uh, so with this particular injury, I feel like you can it can actually go a couple different ways. Mm -hmm. So I've had a couple individuals with this, and they were drastic opposites. So you have the sure. one person that is too afraid to move their shoulder, so their range of motion is limited, mm -hmm. um, which I think is less likely because given the location of this labral tear, their range of motion tends to be fairly decent. They have pain. Yeah with a couple ranges of motions, more the ones that will stress that posterior shoulder or anything that's going into that posterior force. So more that uh, internal rotation, sometimes external end ranges of motion. Cause again, you're starting to stress that uh, gasket or suction cup as Dr. Cray was saying, I'm not gonna do the sound effect because I don't <laughs> think I can do it as well. Um, so those type of things we'd see. So you're expecting more like end range of motion pain, especially if it's someone who's slightly more high level. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you would see what we were discussing earlier, some of that hypermobility in the joint. So we actually have a way where we can assess the integrity of that labrum. So we actually are pressing that humeral head around in the joint and we would see hypermobility, so excessive movement in that posterior direction and most likely a pain reproduction. So those are the things that we're looking for in evaluation is what reproduces their pain because that lets us know if we're on the right track in terms of the tissue that, that's that's their main cause right. of pain. What would you expect? What would they be the specific movements that would bother him with a posterior uh, labral tear, subluxation, instability? So you're looking, again, at anything that stretches that posterior area. Yeah. So reaching across the body, whether it's up or down. So you're stretching that posterior part of the shoulder. Internal rotation, potentially external rotation, depending on the location and how much through that range you take them. Um, and also end range flexion or abduction. Because again, you're stretching the capsule, which then can put tension on the labrum. But those would be more prominent in someone that has an anterior labral tear as compared to posterior, but still potentially painful in this situation. So you complete the initial evaluation. You, you go through your hour long thing that I've seen that I, I really haven't come to grasp with yet. Uh, there's so much that goes involved in it. We know that Fernando was placed on like the short term injury list. Um, you have a very, you know, you have two weeks. What are your initial goals in those two weeks? So the initial goal with anyone is always to manage their pain. So if, if two weeks we're looking at someone who wants to get back to high level activity, you have to accelerate those expectations a little yeah. bit more. So you want to manage that pain very quickly. 
And anything that you found in terms of a deficit in the valuation, like any strength in the rotator cuff, which is your main method of stabilizing that shoulder joint in those susceptible positions, that's going to be your main goal is to strengthen that so that he doesn't risk a secondary injury if he goes goes back to playing. Frequency, duration of, of treatment right now. So obviously, you know, pro sports is a very different animal. Right. Uh, as an athletic trainer, Jess, if you can tap back into those times, we have access to these guys. You know, if we said to them 24-7, it would be 24-7. That's mm-hmm. what uh, $340 million, I think we talked about, Dr. Frey, the last episode. Somewhere around there. Um, I feel like the athletic trainer has reason enough to be like, this is when I say it is. If you had that type of athlete, again, not Fernando himself, mm-hmm. would you as a physical therapist attack this five, six days a week? So if you had someone who was trying to get back to a higher level activity and had the ability to see you every day and had a short time frame, I would say seeing someone, you know, four, five, six times a week, like we would traditionally for athletic training is not, not out of the question. Um, But in this specific setting, it is sometimes hard to do that because we're still utilizing insurance. So if you, if you have the ability to do that, it does help you meet that accelerated time frame. Um, if not, uh, breaks in between doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily be slower. Right. So I would say at least at least two to three times a week, and when we're on that type of a schedule, we're probably going to be doing closer to an hour and a half each time you come to see me. What have you seen from a modality standpoint that has been effective? So modalities can be a very general mm-hmm. term. Yeah. So in general, what, what how would you attack this treatment-wise? So, I mean, I don't use a lot of the traditional modalities. Yeah. So I might use TENS or some type of interferential, which is a stimulation that helps decrease pain if pain is inhibiting his function. Okay. But typically for someone like this, the biggest intervention I would utilize for them is blood flow restriction strengthening yeah. because it allows us to maximize their strength under a low load. So we're not risking additional stress to the labrum, but we can maximize how much hypertrophy or muscle gain they're getting in that short time frame. And we do a lot of uh, blood flow restriction at the Energy Lab, yes, don't we? Yes, we do. Yeah. yeah. On both sides. Yeah. All the sides. Uh, you know, Jess, I, I don't blame you if you didn't have a chance, but uh, if you listen back to episode three, you know, we were, I think, a little bit surprised that he was, uh, he meaning Fernando, to relate it back to the topic of conversation, yeah. was, you know, back on the field within about eight to nine days, taking live BP with the team. Being that this was a non-surgical approach, my familiarity here is that you as the PT sent him back to Dr. Frey and cleared him to do those types of activities. So Dr. Frey just sends this patient that we made up here back yeah. to you uh, for an, another exam. They're back in, your, in the office. Mm-hmm. What did you see to give the okay for him to start taking those types of daily activities with, with the team. Yeah, and, I, and we, we touched on this a little yeah. bit last week. Um, so, so some of the important things are pain-free range of motion, full strength, right? And at least at the very least 90% strength. And um, uh, we want to be able to see him doing baseball activities, things that he's going to be required to do without pain. Um, there's going to be some functional testing and watching him progress and make sure he's able to do those things without pain. So truthfully, I, I do I, I rely on Jess um, or whomever the therapist is that is working with him at that point in time to get a little bit of feedback 
on how things are going in that setting, right? Because I'm examining him in an examining room and what I can do there. I can do some stuff, but it, it is a little bit more limited to, to, than what can be done in the in the physical therapy setting, what can be done in, in the, you know, the beautiful energy lab that we have set up with you know, just a ton of equipment. So I'm relying a little bit on, on some, some feedback from the physical therapist who's working with them two, three days a week, or, you know, in, in this particular scenario, probably more than that. And, you know, once you, once I see him accomplishing those things, then I'm thinking, okay, all right, well, now we can, we can get him out on the field and start, um, sort of these baseball activities, trial run through and see how he tolerates it. And if he has a setback, then you have to pull the reins and slow things down and give it a little more time, you know, and a little bit left of center here. Now, this is one of those particular ranges where there, there could potentially be a role for biologics and, and maybe that's not your first go-to hopefully it's hopefully that they're able to get better with that but there, there, there is a potential role for that for this kind of an injury for a, a labral tear it's never my intention to pin uh in any way a, a, an orthopedic surgeon versus the pt mm-hmm. um just again don't know if you heard last episode he started doing all these activities 10 to 12 days post-injury mm-hmm. in your experience does that seem quick or is that a, a, an ample amount of time for him to get back to those things? So I think that it's something that's possible. We know that in pro sports, because they have access to literally any resource they could ever need or want for someone in rehab, they do have the ability to in, expedite their time frame. Right. So something that might take a traditional PT setting, mm-hmm. six to eight weeks to get true muscle gain, maybe they're looking closer to to a four-week time frame because, again, they're seeing that person every day. They know exactly what they need to work on, and they can hone in on that exact issue every time they see them. So it it does seem a little bit soon, but I don't think it's completely unrealistic given the setting that we're seeing this particular individual in. And I think that at the Energy Lab, we have the ability to do something not that fast, but somewhat similar because, again, The physicians are right next door, so if I see someone is performing a little bit better than where we expected them on a time frame, I can pop next door and say, hey, you know, this guy's a lot stronger already in the four days I've seen him. He's able to reach across his body, have no pain. I think we can start to accelerate his his rehab a little bit more and try and get him back back a lot sooner which you get another beauty of the energy lab right that's that's not a phone call and a left voice message and waiting for a reply from the doctors that's just you just walk next door and we get those answers immediately yeah i think sometimes i scare them a little bit because i just pop around the corner and i wait until they show up but they always show up and we always talk Jess, without needing to get into specifics you know one of the last things i wanted to ask was how different is your approach for this versus shoulder injuries in general right like I think we all know as athletic trainers, um, we're looking to increase, we, we want to restore full strength, full range of motion. Obviously, in this case, we want you know stability of the, the, the glenohumeral joint. Is this much different than any other type of shoulder injury? So I think in your basic principles, it, it actually really is not that different. The right. thing that changes it is the fact that you have someone who wants to go back to a higher level activity which in this case for shoulder is really anything overhead because again, we were talking about how it's a less stable joint. So anything that's overhead requires a lot more strength. And if we have a shorter time frame, that just puts a, a bigger crunch essentially on, on those goals. So our biggest thing is making sure again, full range of motion, full strength, 
and you have the control of that upper extremity or your arm as it goes overhead or into any of those susceptible positions. How much does the scapula play into this, the shoulder blade play into this particular injury? I don't know if you're you're setting me up for that. I'm big. <laughs> Maybe a lob. I'm big, big on the shoulder blade. I think that sometimes we do a disservice to anyone that has a shoulder injury because we think of it as just the glenohumeral joint. And your your shoulder blade has to do a lot of work to get your arm successfully overhead and not to irritate any of those tissues under or around uh, the glenohumeral joint because it needs to upperly rotate about 60 degrees successfully. So that's a huge component um, for this particular individual that we're discussing here as a, as a baseball player, but really anyone that has a, a shoulder injury. All right, so so the scapula, the, the, the socket, the glenoid is attached as part of your scapula, part of your shoulder blade. So if your shoulder blade is not in the right position, then, then that's extra stress across the rotator cuff, and that's extra stress across the labrum. Um, and if your scapula is in good position, then you're, you're, you're easing that stress, you're protecting the other you know, static and dynamic stabilizers around the shoulder. I always explain it as it's kind of your foundation to the arm. So if your foundation of your house is, is not strong, the rest of the house is also not gonna be stable. So I've also had people where they have elbow and wrist pain and it's actually coming from their shoulder blade. So it is very important for someone with a shoulder injury. And this is, this is very different, right, um, than your typical throwing shoulder uh, type injury. Right. Jess, last question for you. Again, not to pin you against episode three. Uh, we, we obviously know this was a non-surgical approach right now. Yeah. You did everything you could as a PT. You got them back on the field. Do you envision us here at Sports Medicine on Tap six months down the road when the MLB season has ended? Will we be having a separate episode regarding the surgical approach to Fernando Tatis. So I I do believe in general that a posterior labral issue instability tear can be successful with conservative management, so non-surgical. However, given someone in his setting who is... He's making $340 million. Exactly. So. <laughs> um, and he's... He's very early in his contract. He's the person they're pinning basically their whole team on. I'm pretty certain that I could bet that he will likely get surgery. They'll fix this at the end of the season. Yeah, because it will help give longevity to his shoulder. So they're trying to protect him for the long term, even though in the short term he could be successful without it. And in my my experience in pro sports, I, I probably wouldn't doubt that if, for whatever reason, uh, the Padres fall out of contention early on, maybe like come August, do we just see that surgery? Does that trigger get pulled a little bit quicker than end of season? Yeah, I would think so, yeah. um, especially if they're not trying to rely on him for anything right. into in yeah. the playoffs, because then that will allow him right. more time on the back end to yeah. recover and rehab and be ready for when they want to hit the ground next season. All right, guys. Well, I think that's going to wrap up our two-part conversation on Fernando Tatis. Jess Harrison, DPT, ATC over at Recon Sports and the Energy Lab. Thank you so much for joining us. You forgot. And Rockstar. (laughs) Dr. Frey, looking forward to next week. Me too. Can't wait. Let's go ahead and close out our tab for tonight, guys. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Before we take off for the evening, we just want to go ahead and thank our sponsors. 
our good friends and colleagues at Reconstructive Orthopedics for providing us the support and means necessary to get this endeavor off the ground running. The Energy Lab, located here in Pittman, New Jersey, the premier sports performance destination. Neck of the Woods Brewing Company, as always, for hosting us each and every episode. Our good friends at Timber Reel Productions, Joe Warner, our on-site producer, and Kyle Miller, our editor. Without them, I think Dr. Frey and I would still be struggling to plug the microphones in. Total Turf Experience for all your sports needs. Do us a favor and find us wherever you get your podcasts from, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to us so that you get all the updates of the latest episodes and give us a rating. Let us know how we're doing. You could also reach out to us on sportsmedontap at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Tell us how we're doing. Let us know if there's any specific topics you're interested in hearing or you would like to hear from certain guest speakers. Again, that's sportsmedontap at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.